Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sunjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to this segment on CIO Talk Network. To learn more about the show, visit www.ciotalknetwork.com. And as always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter. And look for this show as hashtag RealGems and hashtag TeamMGMT, which is Team Management. The topic for today's show is discovering and polishing the real gems in your team. And our guest for today's show is Thomas Kalditz, who's the founding executive director of the Door Institute for New Leaders at the Rice University. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm terrific. Great. Great to have you. And we also have Helen Norris, who's the chief information officer at Chapman University. Hi, Helen. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. Thank you, Sanjog. Yes, yeah, so, so the topic, the reason we picked up today is because, of course, we have spoken a lot about leadership and all, all about team development and look at the heroes, make them better. But there are many other heroes who may be working behind the scenes or perhaps they even go undiscovered so they don't get as much attention. They don't get as many opportunities. And we do not really maximize the potential of each member that belongs to the team. We wanted to talk about that. So that said... Uh, First question is for you, Helen. When we look at many such situations where squeaky wheels get the most attention or a few heroes or or star performers that you identify, we keep working to make them better, but then there are many others who could be even doing better than the star performers if given the right type of attention and grooming. Where do we drop the ball? Well, that's a good question. I think um, we do tend to pay attention to people where we've seen results in the past. So we tend to go back to if we've had a good experience, a staff member has done a great job on a particular project, when another project comes along, we tend to go, oh, what about Mary or or that particular staff member? So I think that that's part of it. in IT, our end users become very comfortable with somebody who's done a great job in a particular area, and they want to constantly work with that person. The, the, it feels like maybe the easiest road to go. It's quicker to work with that person who I've worked with before. So I think to get away from that, it's, it's a couple of techniques you can use. It is to pair people up to put together a a person who's seen as a star performer and a person who hasn't been seen as a star performer before and have them both work on a particular task or a project, uh, giving a team an opportunity to get to know the second person in that role uh, and to to get that same great um, experience with them as they had with the first individual. So, uh, based on Helen's response, uh, Tom, if you notice that what Helen suggested would really work well, assuming that you have also been given equal emphasis on who all you have in your team, that means every member. But in many cases, we find even the leaders or managers getting comfortable with a few star performers, have them become their lieutenant, or not exactly the yes-men, but people who they would go to every time, versus giving equal opportunity to other people. So, so this this gap is it a function of a manager getting complacent? Well, yeah, I, I think so. I think it is a form of of complacency, and I think that managers that pull people out of the team and give them a tacit uh, leadership role have to be very, very careful with that, um, because as you said before, you know, some some people look good relative to the other people on the team, and sometimes that's at the cost of the team. And uh, likewise, much quieter people can actually be making the entire group work better and smarter and, and faster. I think one of the things that we could do more of that's, that's actually very simple and very inexpensive is to ask team members to rate one another. And there's a terrific instrument <clears throat> that was published uh, in the open literature just a few years ago called the CATME, C-A-T-M-E-B. 
And um, it's a single sheet of paper where a number of team members rate themselves and each of their team members on very specific behavioral um, actions. So it's not so much an opinion survey about how someone's performance was on the team. It just asks very specifically, did this person do this behavior, this behavior, this behavior? We used that quite effectively at Yale with uh, teams that were working on business cases in a competition. Uh, for four years running now, uh, we had injected this technique into the, uh, the teams that were in their international case competition. So we had to do this in six languages for 12 teams. Uh, but it, it, it was a terrific way to give those team members information about themselves uh, in a validated way. I mean, this is a well-validated research instrument, but it's simple enough that the average person can pick it up and start using it from day one. So, Helen, if you look at yourself as the leader, and you've got your lieutenants who are managing a number of other uh, individuals in the organization, you may just look at how the results are coming out for the most part versus micromanaging and seeing how your managers or your lieutenants who are also leaders handling their team members. So if, if, if is there a way to, to make sure that these people are doing the job they're supposed to, which is to identify, discover, and then polish the real gems versus the ones who are just a few star performances. Even if you're getting results, you could always get better results if you did that. But is there some active checks and balances or effort being made towards it? Uh, that's a good question. I think one, uh, there are a couple of ways that you can improve the performance or, or find uh, the hidden gems, as well as looking at the results. As you pointed out, as a leader with, with lieutenants, you tend to look at the results and note that this person's meeting their deadlines, this person's um, uh, teams are, are, are delivering their projects on time and, uh, and other key performance indicators. However, to dig a little bit deeper probably requires taking taking time as a leader to really observe the team close in, to perhaps um, spend some time sitting with the team, watching how they work together. I love the idea that Tom raised about having the teams rate each other because things come up that you wouldn't necessarily see from the key performance indicators. So uh, taking advantage of tools like that, doing 360 evaluation. In, in IT, most of our work involves serving people throughout the organization, including people outside of the teams on those evaluations of the behavior, I think can add another dimension uh, to what you see there. So that's one, one way that uh, you could deep dive a little bit deeper and, and find uh, the the hidden gems in there. But I, I do think that there's still a lot to be said for kind of the old-fashioned approach of observing the team, spending time with them in their project workspaces or, or in, um, in even in project team meetings to, to see where, where there are quiet stars that aren't being heard. And I think that could be very helpful. So to that, Tom, do you think when you sit in a meeting and you find a couple of very talkative or extroverted individuals who are giving ideas, there are some a few people who are silent, they may say fewer things, and but they are, are very meaty in terms of what the value they are bringing. Or even if they don't say something, their body language, etc., will tell that they're itching to tell something or contribute, but something is holding them back. How do you... Because if they don't talk, you don't know if they're a gem or not. And then if they do talk, you have to evaluate compared to what many other people who are talkative are saying and, and weigh in terms of the value that they're bringing, even in, in terms of fewer words or fewer ideas. You know, there are a lot of ways to bring in people who ordinarily wouldn't speak up. Uh, one technique I've used a lot to determine <clears throat> the vulnerability of my organizations to some sort of, you know, really catastrophic or negative outcome is to pull the team into a room and give them each a 4x6 a card 
and have them imagine a real fiasco for our organization and to anonymously write down, you know, how this happened, you know, what set of circumstances have we created that makes us vulnerable to, to a big fall. And when you do that, when you then pull those in anonymously and read through them, often you find that uh, individuals have a lot of insights as to, as to the vulnerabilities of the organization, but they're not necessarily speaking up. And this usually results in, you know, if you don't do this sort of check, uh, it results in some kind of a big problem happening. And then, you know, there's always that person standing off in the corner going, well, I knew that wasn't going to work. <laughs> and as a leader, it's your job to find that person you know, before the problem occurs. And so I think allowing people to give some anonymous input on hard problems, get some really creative solutions, that even some of the higher performers, you know, might be hesitant to talk about in open form, but they're willing to write it down anonymously and and pass it along to the leader. So one is to talk about the things which you see. Another is to identify people who otherwise may be talkative and say, okay, I'm the first one to jump on any project, etc. But otherwise they have that nine to five type of mentality, not the number of hours that they spend, but this is a job. And, and so this is interesting where some people may be most talkative, show the most initiative, but they have a mindset of this being a job. So what they eventually produce is not in as much alignment to what the, the, what's in the best interest of the organization. How do you differentiate between what somebody shows as a behavior and their true mindset? And that's where the opportunity will be to identify gems. Let's explore that more. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Tom, how did we get through this facade of someone looking very actively involved? but has a mindset of a regular nine-to-five job. Yeah, I think the way that you get through that is by asking people to uh, articulate back to you as a leader what your intent is, to be able to describe back to you, you know, what is the ideal end state, what's the purpose of the, of the activity, and I think what you'll find is that the people who are going through the motions have a really hard time doing that. But people who understand wh- where their leader is trying to get to, you know, who have a strong sense of what their intentions are and, um, and what the, especially what the outcome is supposed to look like, uh, those people are freed up to operate very independently. And I think you'll, you'll see them uh, working with, with independence and passion as compared to the people that are just putting in time. So uh, when you look at it, Helen, from uh, your team's perspective, and when you identify that there are a few people who are otherwise showing a lot of uh, vocal contribution or, or they're just saying things, but they are not following through, do you think we should just right away label them as people who are trying to put up a facade and they're not the right people or there's an opportunity for them to be converted as well? I think that, you know, my approach is that there is always an opportunity for a person to, to turn a person around, I, within, within reason, obviously. But I think my first um, approach would be to work with them to try to, to figure out why they're just going through the motion. 
perhaps take a critical look at myself as a leader uh, to see if there's something that I failed to do to articulate what the vision and what the, the goals that we're trying to achieve are. In fact, I think the way to really get people to buy into the goals is to have them be involved in the development of and the articulation of the strategy, the vision, and the goals. So to the extent that you can, pull in people those quiet people, those people who appear to just be going through the motions, pull them into the design of the, the strategy, to the identification of the goals for the organization. Then you can truly get buy-in. People will always truly buy-in if they feel they were part of the goal setting in the first place. So I think that that's one technique that you can take. Um, and... Secondly, if a person comes on after a vision has already been set, it's important when you go through that interview process that you under, that the person who's coming into the organization understands at the time of the interview what it is we're trying to accomplish as a team. If they don't understand it when they're coming through the interview, it's maybe too late when they get here to, to bring them on board. So I will try to include people in the design of the goals and the articulation of the goals and then um, move forward with that, with them in, as fully engaged members of the team. Now, um, if you look at, uh, Tom, the way people do certain things, that also makes or breaks the way they would perform. So they may be very articulate, they may be showing all the zeal in the world, but the way they get things done or the way they think the approach or they sometimes get stuck in whatever they thought is the right thing is what becomes their shortcoming. In terms of polishing, how do you get them over this um, this mindset or, or, or where they're stuck. Yeah, I think that what you have to do is pull them out of the context that's reinforcing that kind of routinized thinking and, and give them new and different challenges that they haven't had before, uh, particularly if you can put them with other high performers in, in uh, teams. And this is good for an organization because it usually involves uh, – a certain amount of cross-training or cross-learning, um, but I, I think the best way is to is to shake them up a little bit by pulling them out of that comfort zone that's let them uh, think that way. I think it's also important for a leader to reflect back to them uh, that that you do see that that you do see this sort of consistency that may not be creative or good in their in their products and and you know sometimes just putting it in people's awareness is enough you know that they can check themselves and and begin to adjust so we have always seen Helen that there are some people who almost end up shadowing the other otherwise be the real gem potential how do you get over that because you are not there every moment those people have that tendency. It's almost like bullies in the school who themselves may have, uh, you know, lower self-esteem and that's why they're bullying. But here they're not bullying. It's just that they have a strong personality. They may be good performers, but they are unknowingly shadowing the other, uh, you know, other people who have the potential to really contribute and become the real gems. I, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, situation to deal with the person who's kind of filling up the room at every occasion and not giving other people an opportunity to shine. Um, I think a couple of things that you can do to accommodate that is, first of all, work with the other people in the room to make sure that they feel that they have a way to, to speak up and to be heard. Uh, but really, I'd like to build on Tom's point. One of the things that Tom mentioned is sometimes people are completely unaware that their behavior is um, problematic in some way, and they've never heard it before, especially for a person who speaks up a lot or comes across as I use the word bully, uh, maybe not so much as a bully, but somebody who feels like a strong personality. It's very difficult for a person to give uh, that individual feedback 
as a leader, I think it's our responsibility to give the feedback to that person that their behavior is, is, is challenging for others. Um, we always think in my organizations of feedback being a gift. A lot of times feedback, people think of feedback as being something negative. You're going to give criticism to somebody. But really, you're giving that person a gift of letting them know that their behavior is challenging for other people. Uh, and the, the gift, the feedback has to, it doesn't have to feel um, personal. It, it, it can be phrased in ways like, your relationship with your colleagues would be better if you started doing this or if you stopped doing that. And really take it from the other perspective instead of saying, you know, you're a bully. People get, uh, your colleagues would feel better if you did this. My relationship with you would be better if we did that. I recognize that that is hard to, that's, that's very time consuming. And as you pointed out, the leader is not around all the time. And that's why I think it's very important for us to build the leaders throughout the organization who can continually give that feedback to their colleagues in a non-threatening way. So, Tom, if you look at many of such situations where, um, you know, if Helen knew, suppose, in her team, if this is happening, that's one. But the person who is real champ but is not of the type who is going to speak up and the people who are like shadowing this individual or a set of individuals is the one, of course, not going to be even realizing that they are doing it. Not always where Helen is present, then how do we uncover those situations? Yeah, so I think um, observation is, is the first step there. Uh, if you're concerned about that in a team, is to simply watch them and even better... Uh, videotape them because often when you play back a tape like that, just unedited, you know, just have people watch as a from a third party perspective what's going on in the team. Some of that behavior becomes, you know, not only obvious but in some instances somewhat comical, and people, you know, can can uh, see what they're doing and they can go from there. Um, but you know, here's the thing. Um, it's almost as if what we're trying to figure out is how do you take an introvert who's a great team contributor and make them more pronounced or no, more recognized. And in fact, you know, that's really not necessary. It's, it's about the team performance. There's a great case study that's out there from the, from, uh, the late 90s of a guy named Jack Jeffries who built a competitive skydiving team called Arizona Airspeed. And from the ground up, he wanted to build the best skydiving team in the world. So he got all of the best skydivers from around the world and put them all together on this team. And it was an absolute disaster. Uh, even though they had all the talent, uh, the dynamics were such that they couldn't win. And it wasn't until he went kind of went back to, to scratch and found people who worked together as a team well and then trained them and made them competitive that he was able to win with that team and it became the, the most winning competitive skydiving team in the world. So I think we see that on our own teams too where we pay too much attention to stars and you know individual performance in the context of the team when in fact it's the team product by which people should be judged. So, Helen, when you look at any of such situations where something like this is happening, and Tom, it's a great idea for someone to record, but is that practical is what I would like to ask Helen. When you are trying to get people to do what they're supposed to do in their regular day lives, you have to observe or you have to have another set of eyes deputed within that organization which is below you. I, you know, I think it's really about, to, to Tom's point, putting together a great team. And when the team is working well together, when the dynamics are right, I believe that the team members become accountable to one another. It's not about the leader necessarily having um, a, a, a set of eyes that's keeping, keeping things working. It's that the team members are committed to each other and they want to do the right thing for the team, as, as Tom pointed out. So in that case, 
it's the leader really becomes, I think, a coach of the team. And our role as leaders is really to provide the opportunity for the team to be successful. And having it, this is the, I think, to the, the, the end goal is to have the team really be self-managing and be um, accountable to each other. That, to me, is a true high-performance team or high-performing team is when the team members understand the goals as set um, and understand their role within the organization. I agree with Tom said that everyone's role is a little bit different. We don't, everyone on the team doesn't have to be a, an outspoken superstar and then is accountable uh, to each other. Then you'll find that teams will work together to ensure that they have each other's back and to ensure that they fill in um, for, for one another uh, in the right place. You, you can see examples of this in sports. A very current example, if you look at the, the current, I recognize they have all the talent too. If you look at the Golden State Warriors in the NBA, Part of the reason that they're successful, they have great, lead, great superstar players, but they have other players who are willing to take a bench position in order to have the team be successful. And that's because I think they're accountable to each other, not necessarily because the coach talked them into it. So point well taken, uh, Helen. Uh, now, Tom, coming to you, let's compare the teams. If you talk NBA, you've got 10 people. You've got one coach who has got equal access and equal visibility of each person in the team. Come to an organization where you've got hundreds or thousands of people, and then you've got layers of hierarchy where you are supposed to manage through the process. Not exactly the same, and at the same time, we are, we are making, a, making an assumption, and we'll go into the break right now, but... Uh, we're making an assumption that if we work towards making it a great team and which is again somehow that great team concept is put in place then this discovering and polishing the real gems in your team the topic that you're discussing becomes a moot point but frankly the the reality is that there are things happening in teams all the time in bigger organizations where you have this issue where people are shadowing the others and then there are people who are real gems which get undiscovered or sometimes they walk away because they don't meet their potential. How do we handle in real life? Please stay tuned listeners, we'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, uh, Tom, we painted a picture of a smaller team where you have equal visibility so you can get done and get them to a high-performing team like an NBA. But in real organizations, hundreds of workers, multiple levels of hierarchy, and managers not the same way, not at the same level of intellectual and emotional intelligence and leadership quality as a top leader, then the team may not really get that high performance level as we would like to see. How do we get over this hurdle when we're working in large organizations? Well, I think the first step is to value managers who, who can uh, manage teams, who can lead teams and get higher performance out of them. So uh, you know, that's the first thing. And I think there are two really important characteristics to look at, whether they're in the, you know, the high-performing team members or in high-performing management. And the first thing is they have to evidence 
a uh, an understanding of and, and actions, do, you know, promote actions that are indicative of the next level in the hierarchy. It's it's often a mistake that we judge people's value and performance by how well they do only at their level or in their team. And so the the focus needs to be more on potential to serve at higher levels rather than performance at at a given level. And then the second thing that's really indicative that 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 senior managers in large organizations have to look out for is uh, are individuals who, by their collaborative style and by their working across the hierarchy, across the flat of the hierarchy, can help make all boats rise. In other words, they're not just good at creating value in their own team, in their own lane, but they're people who start sharing ideas across the organization so that the greater organization gets better. You know, often it's the case when you've got these sort of spotlight superstars. They don't share ideas very well. They don't, you know, they're, they're a little insecure, so they keep their good ideas in their team and try to make their team the best it can possibly be. And those people are limited in terms of potential in the organization. And, and unfortunately, sometimes managers who don't have a lot of experience, you know, fall victim to that. They see these, these you know, extreme high performers that are doing great in their team, and they think that that person's going to be good for the organization overall, when in fact, you know, that person is really just focused on their own ambitions. So how do we get over, so while there are some good leaders and performers, but we don't know and we'll always have a mixed bag. So if someone who is unfortunately under a manager who is getting there, but it's not truly there in terms of being able to lead and manage the troops, then these issues with either hidden gems or uh, the gems who are identified, but nobody is really taking care of them because there are some other people who are still in the limelight. Alan, when you are dealing with such a situation, what 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 is your recourse? That's a it's a tough situation to to deal with. I I do um, I want to build on something that Tom said that and that that you said that we have managers at different levels of the organization, and we need to value the managers who um, work across the organization and collaborate really well. First of all, I think management is really a skill that can be learned. So I think it's very important that when we move people into management positions, and even people who have been there uh, in management for a long time, it's important to realize that uh, you have to provide some education and training to managers in how to manage and how to lead. I, I, I can't tell you how many organizations I've walked into, especially in technical organizations, where a great technical performer has been moved into a management position and it's as if because they were a great network analyst or whatever, they're now the, the supervisor or the manager and it should just magically happen. And, you know, it just doesn't. So I think that's how we end up in the situation you described where we have a, a manager who doesn't know how to nurture a hidden gem or, or somebody who can per, deliver a lot a lot more value than they are. So I think working, providing the necessary um, training and, and skills building to the management team is critical. I think it's important to bring in, uh, to send those people to training, to perhaps have um, uh, mentoring situations where you have one great manager in the organization who maybe can manage mentor the other manager who's perhaps a little bit weaker to help them with their uh, to to manage the talent that's on their team. So I think encouraging cross mentoring uh, situations in that in that particular. Um, instance that you described where both the manager and the person who's frustrated by a, 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 a more junior or less uh, experienced manager can get some coaching from elsewhere in the organization, I think, can be very helpful. Uh, providing management skill training to the, the manager can be very helpful. Um, and ultimately, if the person is not a strong manager or doesn't appear to, to learn those skills, you do have to consider whether or not they're right. 
for a, a leadership role and perhaps make a change in, in that situation. Now, with whatever you just mentioned, uh, Helen, there would be, of course, the managers that you're talking about. But then when the, when the time got tough or if there are other challenges where even the managers are, for example, there is a restructuring or there are some other pressures where even the, the managers are buckling, then what? How would, you, how would you make sure that the people below them are not losing their true potential? Yeah, I, that's that's really challenging because you do want to um, respect the manager's situation and and not make the respect the manager's position and not make the situation worse by alienating them or, or isolating them. I, I think using um, some external coaching to provide some additional support for the, the, the manager, while at the same time providing a different way for the, the superstar performer or the hidden gem performer to perhaps work on a different team and, and a different project. With Many of us have a matrix-type organization where a person may report to one manager but work on a project team that's led by another manager. And perhaps moving uh, one of those people in a project team, if you have the opportunity to do that, to give them a more um, varied set of experiences in the workplace can help with some of that frustration. Uh, in, in that situation. You know, I really agree with Helen's point about uh, the coaching piece. Uh, you know, we're seeing a revolution in the use of coaching uh, at lower and lower levels uh, in, in the organizations. Here at Rice University, our intention next fall is to offer a professional leadership coach to every sophomore in the school. Uh, and in business settings, I see, I see managers and others who would not think of fielding a weekend softball team without having coaches involved, but for some reason they think they can fumble through a multi-million dollar business project with a team and, and not you know, allocate any kind of coaching effort to that. And it's, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Um, so I, I think you're going to see more and more people taking advantage of professional coaching to make sure some of these individual managers are successful and that their teams run well. So, you know, Tom, go ahead. Oh, Tom, I, 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 I agree. I think the professional coach, there's true value there um, for managers at all levels of the organization. And I think as leaders in the organization, more and more of our job is coaching. You know, I, I really see that my role, uh, the, the vast majority of my role is coaching managers who report to me. And because as, as um, Sanjog mentioned earlier, it's a big organization. There's, it's not a little team. There are people uh, that have to be managed by uh, various managers throughout the organization. So coaching um, with external coaches, but helping leaders develop their coaching skills, I think is really critical also because we have coaching moments every single day uh, where we observe something or we have our manager come to us and say, what should I do in this situation? And it's incumbent on leaders in the organization to coaches, to coach um, their managers. So I feel that we have to learn coaching skills too, and uh, there, it's it, it's just really the in the collaborative environment something. It's it's not about managing, not about directing. It's about coaching. No, that's so, exactly right. Uh, we're doing the same here at Rice now. Uh, concurrent with this major uh, effort for our students, we've created a coach certification course in our School of Continuing Studies, and wow. so. That's all about teaching managers how to coach. And see, interestingly, you talk about coaching, and I'll share with you some data points. Spoken to quite a few uh, leaders, and the coaching typically is in, in, you know, provided to managers, but not to those workers who actually are supposed to be either mentored and or um, being, being uh, improved or they are groomed 
to improve their skills. Now, the differences between coaching and mentoring is mentoring comes from a manager who also has an agenda to get them to do the job. But a coach really objectively looks at their issues, their concerns, etc. So with all of that said, if someone, especially someone who is a hidden gem, and if they were to be mentored, the fact that their hidden gem is the manager is not able to either identify them or they're not able to groom them or polish them. And the organizations don't want to invest in coaching that field staff, if you will, or, or a programmer then what are we doing? We are trying to de develop a manager who then somehow, somewhere will actually end up, and this is like flipping a coin, that they will be able to identify, discover, and polish those real gems. Is this helping or there is another way out? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog All. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. So, welcome back. So, Helen, my question was, uh, like as I mentioned before the break, so what are your thoughts? Sure. Uh, you know, I think I do agree that sometimes we focus the the coaching uh, on the management team, and and sometimes out of it, as I think you mentioned, uh, budget necessity. Sometimes it simply is a reality that we have limited dollars that allow us to do that, and that does, I think, mean that we don't get the opportunity to drop down to to the next level and find people. Uh, who, who maybe have some extra uh, leadership as, as well as uh, other things to offer. So one of the things I think we can do, I've seen it work in, in um, many organizations, is to develop, to develop an internal mentoring and coaching, a formal mentoring and coaching program. Especially in large organizations, many people really would love to serve as mentors and coaches to other people, people at all levels of the organization. And so you can introduce through your human resources office um, a program that allows anyone in the organization to become a coach and mentor. They can then in turn provide mentoring across the organization, and, and you encourage that kind of ecosystem of coaching and mentoring at all levels of the organization. There is cost associated with it. You do have to provide support and, and uh, for the mentors and the mentees, but it can really be beneficial for people. In addition, uh, you know, I belong to many organizations where we've offered those um, coaching and mentoring in a volunteer capacity. I, I belong to organizations that are associated with women in technology where often we, we offer uh, that kind of um, service to, to other women and other organizations. People love to, to be asked for to help. And you can find people who will do this mentoring and coaching uh, around the organization for you. I was interested in what Tom said, that at Rice they developed this kind of certificate in leadership and um, coaching uh, at the university. Having anyone on your staff go through a, uh, a program like that will be hugely beneficial for the entire organization. So I, I would just encourage uh, leaders to find creative ways to do that without necessarily having to engage a professional coach at, at a cost that, um, that may be a, a bit of a barrier. 
Yeah, see, I would come from a little different angle on that. Uh, we have found mm-hmm. that uh, amateur coaches or coaches that mm-hmm. aren't trained to do it, they're not professionally certified, aren't that effective. I mean, mentors wow. can yeah. help people professionally, but in terms of coaching for performance, we don't, we don't allow anyone to coach in our program for our students unless they're a certified, uh, International Coach Federation certified coach who's been educated and trained for it. And the cost can actually be controlled by using coaches as vendors rather than full-time employees. We're able to coach 500 students uh, three to five sessions per semester for the same price as one senior faculty member. It's, it, wow. is, it is not a prohibitive cost, um, you know, if it's something that you want to get done. And the net effect of it is really powerful. Now, in all of these cases that you just mentioned, uh, there could be a situation where uh, these not underperforming, but the hidden gems, because they are not uh, visibly showing value creation, at least to many, and also there is no, nothing standing out, would there be a possibility of such an employee to be allowed to fail? Helen, if that happens, it's, it's a shame, and it's also failure of the organization that got created, where there is a false positive. You know, it's, it, failure is an interesting word because it feels very negative, but I would argue that if an organization never has a failure, then the organization is never taking any risk. So I do think that we should allow employees to fail. Uh, that demonstrates that we have really put, we've really tried to stretch them. It's not every risk that you take is going to be successful, so you want to um, keep keep that in mind. I think what's important is that when you have a failure, that you respond quickly, that you don't put a person in a position where they are unsuccessful and then leave them there for uh, an extended period of time where it's frustrating for them and frustrating for their co-workers. So I do think that we um, stretch people and allow them to fail. I think it's important, however, to ensure that we take those risks where we're more likely to see failure um, projects or initiatives that are less mission critical. Obviously, you don't want to run the risk of failure or put a create a risk on a a mission-critical or highly visible project, but put people in stretch positions, uh, challenge them to work in a different way on a project where when you have a failure, you can recover a little bit more um, easily. I, I think, though, when we think about failure, we really think about a person who maybe didn't have a failure you know, one time and learn from it and then recover and go forth and perform better in the future because that's the function of failure. The function of failure is for us to learn from it and when we do something, when we do it the next time, we we do something um, a little bit differently. I, I think when we sometimes ask the question about failure, we're talking about an employee who constantly can't deliver and how to to deal with that. I, I think... After a failure, the person um, gets improved, how they react to the failure. Either they improve or they continue to do the same thing. Uh, If they improve, you've had a success with that failure. If they don't, if they continue to do the same thing, then I do think you have a very tough situation where perhaps um, you have an organization who has to be uh, you have a, a situation where a person has to be removed from the team or the organization if they continually have the same pace. And so to that, Tom, I'd like to come to you and say, what if this person was a real gem? But as we said, the very essence of this topic was that they were, since they were not discovered and they were not being polished, that's why they are failing. But you essentially mm-hmm. lost a gem who was who could have been in the making of becoming a superhero but we fail in the process where we allow them to fail. Well, that organizational perspective is really important. Uh, you know, leaders, every decision a leader makes should make the organization better. 
and often a decision to retain somebody after a failure because they do have high potential and, and, you know, perhaps they were unlucky or inexperienced or like you just said, you know, not well shaped by the organization. Um, you, you can't afford to lose people like that. There just aren't enough mm-hmm. hidden high performers and others uh, uh, that you can afford to fire them. Really, I think around this failure business, the thing that's important is that the, the public organizational discussions about failure have to be forward-looking. I mean, it has to be focused on how do we get better next time. But to uh, Helen's point, and I think anybody who's ever actually run an organization would agree, there has to be accountability at some point as well. Mm-hmm. And the key is to make those two conversations separate and independent. So the public organizational forward-looking analysis of that failure, and then in some cases, a private accounting for it um, that, that identifies the kind of people that Helen was describing that just you know, will, will not get it, that it really is a, mm-hmm. a dispositional quality of them as an individual rather than a situational manifestation in the organization. One final comment from both of you. Three words, top of mind, foreign leader, in order for them to be able to work in an environment or basically develop an environment where we are able to, on a regular basis, discover and polish the hidden gems. Starting with you, Helen. Three words. Uh, Three words. Coaching, uh, accountability, and observation, I guess. (laughs) Tom, you cannot repeat your three words. Engaged, uh, aware, and decisive. On behalf of the show and our listeners, I'd really like to thank you both, Helen and Tom, for sharing your thoughts about how to discover and polish the real gems in our teams. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, hope you enjoyed the conversations. Hope you'll go out and actually work towards identifying, discovering, and polishing real gems in your teams. Please like us on Facebook, search for CIO Talk Radio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and join our LinkedIn uh, group. Thank you again for listening to uh, CIO Talk Network. This is Sanjog, all your talk show hosts. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.